2: Hey folks, it's Forrest and Scott from the Astonishing Legends podcast. We just found out that Mint Mobile has come out with an amazing wireless deal for this holiday season. If this was an episode of our show, I'd think this was a myth. It's too good to be true. But the thing is, like some of the legends we cover, this deal is true. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. I'm not sure how they're able to do this. Oh wait, I do know how they can do it. They're online only. No stores, no traditional retail costs. Mint Mobile passes that savings to you. That's unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Like we say on our show, sometimes the unbelievable is true, and this deal proves it. Switch to Mint Mobile now and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. Keep your same number and all of your contacts. That's right, listeners. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash wireless. That's mintmobile.com slash wireless. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com wireless.
3: So what was your favorite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And, uh, Disneyland? You, uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, Vietnam, with the snorkeling and the helicopter ride, the... No. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favorite thing was Radio Wolfgang? Ah. What's that? The app? You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Okay, cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite? Still, yeah. That's, it's just... You're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? and getting ice cream. Right, the Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great, good summer.
0: definition of the deep sea depends on who you talk to but the biology ecology community seems to be circling around 250 meters i like to think i'm in the deep sea when i can't see sunlight i can't detect sunlight anymore which is usually about 500 meters
2: It is actually the BIS, for the first time, allowed the general public to be exposed to liquid breathing and the concept of liquid breathing. And in my opinion, a lot of people got the impression that it was science fiction because of the fact that there was also a subplot related to aliens living under the sea. That's
4: it. Oh, man. Don't hold your breath now. Take it in. There you go. Don't hold your breath. Take it in. That's it. There you go. <laughs> what? <laughs> 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 it's
2: normal. normal. It'll pass in a second. It's perfectly normal. This is perfectly normal. We all breathe liquid for nine months, bud. Your body will remember.
4: That's it. That's it. I find what divers do absolutely fascinating physiologically, equally scary and equally exciting, but I don't think anyone would be under any illusion it is a dangerous sport and certainly when people are pushing themselves to those extremes it's very difficult to predict what the body is going to do and obviously they're a long way from help on the deepest part of that dive.
3: Sorry. No pulse.
1: Hello, and welcome to Science-ish, which does have a pulse. I'm Rick Edwards. I'm joined, as ever, by Dr Michael Brooks.
5: Hello. Have you got a pulse, Michael? I do have a pulse, yes.
1: I'm never too sure when I look at you. (laughs) So, you know how this works by now. Uh, We look at a piece of fiction, uh, a film, or, I mean, a film, really, sometimes a book, but usually, never a, a play. Uh, absolutely. We did. When we first talked about this show, we were like, we could do plays as well, couldn't we? And uh, everyone sort of went,
4: hmm,
1: <laughs> maybe. I just, sorry, playwrights and uh, theatre guys, I don't enjoy the theatre. I find it really oh, dull. controversial. I honestly, when the interval comes, I'm like, you, I've got to go back in there. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I just, the thing is, theatre seats are tiny, I don't fit in them. I'm just like, nah.
5: Now, sometimes there's great stuff on at the theatre. Go on, name me one. I went to see a thing, the last thing I saw was about two years ago, called The Net- <laughs> So you the obviously Net- love it? Yeah,
1: yeah. Point being, we, we pick a film or a book, and then we, we look at the science within it. Uh, and then we ask three questions and try and answer them with the help of some experts. This is now our 13th episode, uh, and we've gone from outer space... Uh, with our with our alien uh, episode last time, to an equally alien landscape, the deep sea. Here's a bottomless pit, baby. Two and a half miles straight down. And so we've gone with, because apparently we love James Cameron here, <laughs> his <laughs> 1989 sci-fi hit, The Abyss. It
0: was alive. It was like a, like a dance of light. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I don't think they mean us any harm. I don't know how I know that.
1: When was the last time you watched The Abyss slash have you seen The Abyss?
5: So I have seen The Abyss and I saw it yesterday. First time? First time.
1: See, I I watched it, I think, I was trying to work this out, I think I was about 14 or 15. And to be fair, it might also be one of those films where I didn't make it all the way to the end. It's that quite long, me. isn't it? Yeah. But I know the general gist of it. So maybe I'll sort of do my plot summary and then you pick yeah. up with your more recent uh, expertise. <laughs> the so director's cut. An American submarine sinks. Yeah. Some Americans and some Soviets try and go and rescue it. There's like a drilling base,
5: is it? Yeah. Or near, exploration. Near, just nearby. Uh,
1: nearby they use as their kind of um, hub of operations. And then they, they go down and try and get this sub and then, oh dear there's some aliens <laughs> sort of,
5: some weird shit happens basically yeah. Yeah. and people start seeing things and, and you know
1: it's all sort of like um, blurry lights and stuff like that at first isn't it
5: yeah yeah. but mm. the problem they've got is it's a nuclear equipped su- submarine so they, they send these navy seals down with them mm-hmm. and their job is to kind of secure the nuclear warheads basically you've got navy meatheads deep under the ocean being idiots yeah. and uh, and trying to blow shit up and the divers have to then, you know, try and stop them.
1: Mm. We're going to sort of avoid all of the alien stuff.
5: Um, Good job, too, because they're terrible aliens. (laughs) They are the wettest, pun intended, the wettest aliens you've ever come across.
1: But we're going to... Yeah, so we're leaving the aliens well alone. Uh, I think we can can sort of do a a quick summary. Are there aliens living under the sea, Michael? In real life, you mean? In real life. Almost certainly not. Almost certainly not. That's good enough for me. Uh, We are going to focus on the on the water side of it, though. This was, by all accounts, an absolute nightmare to film, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
5: apparently. So um, a couple of the characters had real big emotional breakdowns. Ed Harris nearly died during filming one of the scenes, apparently. Yeah. I think James Cameron said he'd never do that again. Yeah.
1: This film was inspired, weirdly, by, by some real science, wasn't
5: it? James Cameron went to a lecture when he was 17 years old that was by a guy called Francis Fajic. And he he talked about experiments that were going on to kind of, you know, do liquid breathing. And uh, and Cameron was obviously just completely kind of hooked by this. You know, I expect that he'll have been inspired by other stories of aliens and, you know, various undersea exploits. But, Mm. you know, I think that that apparently is when he decided to put the whole thing sort of together.
1: That's actually quite nice for science-ish. It's like the full circle. You have science and then you have fiction about that science and now we do our show about the science in fiction.
5: And then one day somebody will do some science based on the things that we're about to reveal in this show. Uh,
1: I mean, I'm amazed it isn't already happening. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. The (laughs) results haven't come out yet. Ah, right, yeah, yeah. So this film, if you sort of ignore the the aliens and and actually also the Russians, um, (laughs) it's about diving and humans going very, very, very deep uh, into the ocean. So I think we should go Uh, really deep on our first question.
5: How deep do you want to go, Rick?
1: Well, I don't like it when you you look at me and say that. Um, But our first question is, how deep can humans go? uh, And what are the limiting factors? Uh, We asked the London Diving Chamber's Dr Oliver Firth.
4: The limiting factors really come down to, A, how much uh, oxygen uh, the diver can store in their body and that's really a function of how big their lungs are how big a breath they take down with them and also how quickly they use it up so those things um, obviously require training to extend as much as possible I think in terms of whether there will ever be limitless diving really I don't know how far we can push this i find what divers do absolutely fascinating physiologically equally scary and equally exciting but i don't think anyone would be under any illusion it is a dangerous sport and certainly when people are pushing themselves to those extremes it's very difficult to predict what the body is going to do and obviously they're a long way from help on the deepest part of that dive. is a, um, a large component of the air that you're breathing is nitrogen which is inert at the surface but as you descend it will dissolve into your blood and it gives you a, a sort of um, narcotic effect the deeper you go so by about 30 meters most people will notice that their um, thinking is perhaps slightly uh, disturbed it's um, typically a euphoric experience initially but as you go deeper and deeper it becomes um, Uh, more and more um, detrimental in terms of your um, thinking ability. You become um, uh, perhaps more, uh, you can't think straight, Um, you become very, very intoxicated, uh, start behaving uh, erratically, um, sometimes paranoia, sometimes anxiety will kick in, uh, and below about 50 metres we hear stories about people believing they're fish and taking their breathing apparatus out and drowning. So it becomes a very sort of uh, dangerous thing to breathe uh, below about 50 metres. It's bad. (laughs)
0: It's wonderful.
3: Seawater.
1: Always remember, you are not a fish. <laughs> Repeat, you are not
5: a fish. <laughs> no, to be fair, I, I've only oh, done... Do try and be fair, yeah. <laughs> I've only done scuba diving once, and uh, I'm not sure that I would do it again. It was all right. But, really? Yeah, would you do I, it?
1: Yeah, I loved it. I've done it twice, and I,
5: I found it absolutely... I loved it while I was there, but it was a lot of work to go through all the theory. Half a day of theory...
1: Ah, uh, I think I did it um, somewhere where they were a little bit more lax. Oh, really? And they are yeah. just like, let's get down there. Yeah. And I was like,
5: great! <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. I did half a day of physics work, basically, about, you know, bubbles and nitrogen and pressures yeah. and everything else. And then, you know, we we got down into the sea, and it was pretty amazing. But... Oh, it was a bit of hard work, yeah.
1: What happens when, when we're coming up? Because that's the bit where you get the old bends, isn't it? Yeah,
5: yeah. So that's when you get, uh, if you come up too fast and, and the pressure uh, goes down too quickly, then all the nitrogen that's around in your blood just bubbles out and, um, and causes bubbles within your tissues. And uh, extremely painful. Bad news. Yeah, yeah, extremely painful. Can lead to death. Um, that is painful, yeah, yeah, so it, that's the other thing about scuba diving for me was there were a lot of things that I felt could lead to death.
4: <laughs> I can't help but
1: so what's the
5: world record depth,
1: Michael, Michael, Hello, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> Michael thinks he's a fish.
5: The world record depth is 1,090 feet or 332.35 meters.
1: Uh huh. You're not just reading that out, are you? You know that? No, yeah, of course Mm. I know. Okay, good, good, good.
5: And apparently the guy who did it spent more than 14 hours underwater. It's taking a piss, isn't it? Yeah. What for?
1: Get down there, set your record, get up again.
5: (laughs) Well, you know. know, Or is
1: it that it just takes you a really long time to get back up? It can't take you.
5: Oh, to, you mean the decompression yeah, yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. God, that's tedious, isn't it? <laughs> that's the whole thing. It, the whole thing is tedious. I saw quite a lot when I was snorkelling, to be honest. I, I didn't oh, see that much more. I'm not,
1: listen, I'm not saying that snorkelling is not good. Well, snorkelling
5: is great. Yeah. But you
1: do see more with scuba. You do. So, so this guy's gone down to uh, over 300 metres. Presumably, you get further problems as you go further down,
5: don't you? Well, you get more and more gases crammed into your lungs. So if you come up too fast, for instance, you risk a pulmonary embolism Mm -hmm. uh, where the gas just expands and bursts your lungs like a balloon. Oh, nasty. Uh, You get high pressure nervous syndrome, which Mm -hmm. basically you're just losing everything. You've got dizziness, nausea, vomiting, tremors, fatigue. Uh, your brain doesn't work as well. That, you're having a nightmare. You, you're basically... And you actually literally have nightmares afterwards. You have poor sleep with nightmares afterwards. With all of these things, is the problem the bubbles? And if, if
1: we get rid of the bubbles, then you kind of get rid of these issues. Yeah, yeah. So how do we get rid of them then?
5: We breathe liquids.
1: I mean, immediately, I, I'm, I want to say, no, we can't. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I want that to be our second question. Can we actually liquid breathe. And we asked one of the field's pioneers, Professor Thomas Schaefer, exactly what liquid breathing is. When we breathe gases like air, for example,
2: the main purpose is to bring oxygen into the body. And when we breathe in air, only 21% of it is oxygen. So, air uses nitrogen as a carrier for oxygen when we breathe air. However, it's also possible to breathe liquids which have a high solubility for oxygen. And in this case, these chemicals have incredible solubility for respiratory gases. If you talk about something like saline or seawater, the solubility of oxygen in that is less than 1% volume volume basis. In other words, it's about 0.03 milliliters of oxygen can be dissolved in 100 milliliters of saline or seawater. On the other hand, if you talk about a perfluorochemical, there's 30 volumes percent or 30 milliliters of oxygen which can be dissolved in every 100 milliliters. And that solubility, in fact, is even greater than the solubility of oxygen in blood. So these compounds can carry more oxygen and carbon dioxide than blood can carry. So it is possible then to breathe a liquid like a perfluorochemical. And that concept is known as liquid breathing. And in fact, there's a page on Wikipedia that everyone refers to uh, when they
1: want to know something about liquid breathing. Don't worry, we've gone there for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little insight into the uh, the research that Brooksy does before every episode of Science Session. <laughs> that's what I mean. And why, why would he give away my methods? Sorry, mate. Sorry, but we'll, we'll, we'll cut that out, I'm sure. Yeah. So these perfluoro compounds, PFCs, there is more oxygen dissolved in them, or there can be, than there is in air or in our blood. Is yeah. that right?
5: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's pretty amazing, and then it just so, and then it just pops
5: out. So when you fill your lungs with it, the oxygen will naturally seep out, effectively into your into your bloodstream. And so, has this been around for a while? Then have people have been breathing this stuff in, and uh, you know, going about their lives. Well, not certainly not going about their lives, but we've been on it since the 1960s. Um, there's various sort of experiments that were done. Of course, in the 60s, you could do fantastic experiments. And, and so we did it with a lot of animals. and, and Of course we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they, so they found that in the first sort of set of experiments that rats could be in this stuff. You literally drop them into the liquid and they stay there, presumably hold them down to stop them swimming. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, and you leave awful. them in there for 20 hours or so. And, and, and the problem is that you're fine once you're in there, but once you're out, you're screwed. So, so what didn't work... Why, why is that? Because your body actually can't, once it's out, get rid of all the, the kind of waste products that are produced through respiration. So, so you're in a position where you can stay in, in this liquid, and then they bring you out and you die. Mm. Uh, so that's not great. But that's not ideal, is it? It's not ideal. So we've done it, you know, humans have done it to a certain extent, but what we do is a thing called partial liquid ventilation, right. where you have sort of 40% normal air and 60% liquid so you can get rid of yeah. the carbon dioxide that, that builds up. In, in the way that you normally would, by breathing it out? Yeah. Right. This is a means of actually uh, helping premature babies, for instance, now. So this has been explored a lot, because if they're born too early, their lungs can't deal with air. They literally can't be held open. And so there's been experiments where they've tried to help uh, you know, very, very premature babies uh, to breathe by filling their lungs with, with liquid.
1: Oh, wow. How do fish get on, then? What's the, what's their mechanism? Because they're sort of doing a bit of liquid breathing in a way, aren't they? <laughs> yeah,
5: they have gills that are able to separate out oxygen from the water.
1: And so can't we do something similar?
5: Well, we've tried, but we, we haven't managed to make any technology that, that does this. Not in the Nothing. way that's efficient enough for us to, to breathe, it. no.
1: Oh, so we could do it, but the energy cost would be too great, would it? Actually,
5: there's a, there's a group in, in, at the University of Southern Denmark who developed a crystal that they say you know, can absorb a massive amount of oxygen and you just stick this in your mouth and then you'll get oxygen coming out of it. But it's a kind of prototype. doesn't really work properly. But you know, if we could make an artificial gill, hmm. it'd be brilliant.
1: Because fish are absolutely nailing it, aren't they? Yeah. The fish yeah. Have got no problem. But it's
5: one of those things that evolution has solved and we mm. haven't managed to reproduce.
1: Hmm. A bit embarrassing for us. So can
5: humans use this liquid breathing for diving? Then To a very limited extent. One of the problems is that if you have loads of liquid in your lungs, you lose a lot of heat very quickly as well. So basically, no, we haven't managed to get liquid breathing really working yet. I mean, it sounds
1: horrendous. I've got liquid in my lungs and it's bloody freezing. (laughs) No, thank you. The actual discovery of liquid breathing
2: was rather serendipitous. A colleague of mine, Leland Clark, was working with these perfluorochemicals and knew that they had the capability of dissolving large amounts of oxygen and carbon dioxide from a chemistry perspective. And he was in the laboratory and he had the liquid in front of him And he had these cages of mice around the laboratory. And he got one of those aha moments thinking, well, what if I were to put this mouse into the liquid and allow them to breathe on their own the liquid? And lo and behold, he did that experiment. And the mouse breathed the liquid for about 15 minutes and he took the mouse out and it was perfectly fine. And then he took that one step further in doing the diving experiments where he took a mouse and took various animals to great depths and they were breathing liquids rather than gases. And he showed that when they breathed the liquids, they didn't have any decompression sickness when they came to the surface rapidly. So that was the start of that it could be done.
4: What is all this stuff? Fluid breathing system. We just got them.
2: You use it when you go really deep. How deep? Deep. Deep. How deep? It's classified. Anyway, you breathe liquid so you can't get compressed.
0: The pressure doesn't catch you. You mean
4: you got liquid in your lungs? Oxygenated fluorocarbon emulsion. Bullshit. Bullshit. Check this out. Uh, can I borrow your rat? What, what are what?
3: you doing?
2: Hey, hey, hey. What, no, you no, gonna, no, 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 no. You're wait. gonna kill her. It's okay, I've done this myself. Oh man, look, what are you doing? You just drowning her? She's gonna be fine. I breathe
4: this myself. Gonna be fine. No,
2: man, she, she's gonna drown. Look, look, she's freaking out.
4: Just going through a normal adjustment period. Normal,
3: does this look normal to you? She's gonna drown!
4: He's taking the fluid into his lungs. He's taking the fluid into his lungs. There he goes. So there's a bit of anxiety here. Now he's starting to relax. He's breathing fine. See his chest moving? Getting plenty of oxygen. <laughs> Damn rat's breathing that shit. That is no bullshit, hands down. The goddamn thing I ever
1: saw.
2: See, the fluid's harder to push in and out than air. It's, it's a little more work to breathe.
4: But he's doing fine. He's digging it. She's doing it. She ain't digging it. All right, let her out, now. Okay, all right. Okay, now we let the fluid drain from his lungs. All All right, give
2: it here. Give it, give it, give it. There's a rat. See, he's fine. It's a sheep. There have been discussions by Navy SEALs who are not allowed to speak in public or acknowledge any of this work. But I have spoken to Navy SEALs who have claimed that they did this. And because they did it so long ago, I had asked them to speak at a conference to tell us about their experiences. And they uh, said that they were not allowed to speak publicly about any of this. But they were perfect examples of someone who had been exposed under very uh, severe conditions at great depths and had survived
4: okay relax now bud just relax bud relax now bud watch me relax okay watch
2: me watch me okay
4: doing fine now don't hold your breath take it in just let yourself take it in take it in that's it oh man don't hold your breath now take it in there you go don't hold your breath take it in that's it there you go what? what
3: it's perfectly normal.
4: normal. It'll pass in a second. It's perfectly normal.
0: This is
2: perfectly normal. We all breathe liquid for nine months. Pod, your body will remember. That's it. That's it.
5: Do you think they've gone down and done that? All military technology eventually becomes public technology, doesn't it? And yeah. and I think that we'd have known about that. It, well, it so solves not, too many problems, doesn't it? If you yeah, could there's do not really it, any
1: reason to keep it to yourself no, either, is no. there? You make a lot of money.
5: I refuse to believe that, that we can do liquid breathing commercially and we haven't exploited it because I know a lot of people who would pay for that.
1: Yeah, not you, though. You don't not really me, it, no. you?
5: Just happy with God, your snorkel.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the bit in the film where the, the rat is liquid breathing, that's, I mean, that's happened.
5: So that has happened, yeah. But they die afterwards uh, at some point. Well, you said that the mouse was fine. Yeah, I think it wasn't fine for very long.
1: I also think that back in the day, they did not give a
5: shit. <laughs> <laughs> they got it out, it was still breathing, and yeah. that was it. And then like, you know, shuts it back into its cage. Exactly, yeah, Forgot didn't notice it. that it died three minutes later. Let's say for a moment that we
1: can do do liquid breathing and, and with like total liquid ventilation.
5: Why would that be better than normal scuba, then? What's it doing for us? You don't get the bubbles, basically. Mm. So, so you don't get the decompression sickness, you don't get the, the problems with that.
1: Uh, and what else do I, do I, need to take down, like, uh, if I'm getting chilly, do I need some sort of artificial heater on me as well?
5: Yes, you would. Um, so that's
1: quite a lot of stuff to take down, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. For, it's best
5: you. to stay on the surface and oh, look I'm down right. with your snorkel. Right,
1: well, that's not what we're talking about on this episode of Science Ish
5: Michael. <laughs> we're talking about the abyss, and it was deep. <laughs> yeah, and you wouldn't see me down there.
1: If I was down there, liquid breathing, at like 500 metres, and the only thing I saw was you, I'd be like, I see this in the studio every week. <laughs> I don't need it down yeah, here as well. No,
5: no, it's all right because it'd be quite dark. Yeah, you
1: be... give me the thumbs down.
5: Yeah. <laughs> this is. <shit. laughs> Should we go back up? <laughs>
1: I'm getting cold. <laughs> If we are able to to nail this technology, then the the limits of human diving would be be massively increased. Yeah, yeah. We'd We'd be going down very deep. Yeah, we'd
5: be like the deep sea fish, wouldn't we? We could get down
1: really, really far, and then I'm wondering, what am I seeing down there? And that is our third question. What would we find? Uh, And we asked Professor Cindy Lee Vandover of Duke University.
0: The scale at which we know the deep ocean depends on who you talk to. If you talk to a geophysicist or geologist who's mapping the seabed topography, we know that pretty well now. But as a biologist, I would say you know very, very little of the seafloor has been explored. We've gotten better. Our access has improved over the decades. I started in the 1980s, was my first cruise, where I was working with submersibles. And there were very few of us who were doing this, and, and not many vehicles are countries that had access. Now every country who wants a tethered vehicle can lower it down and take a look at what's happening on the seafloor. But think about a vehicle where you have video cameras. You're looking through water where light penetration doesn't go very far. You're really looking at little pinpoints on the seabed. And we, when we plot them on the maps, they look like big icons, right? You go to Google Earth and you put your drop your little point, and it looks like you've covered the whole map because there's all these little points, but they're really just tiny square meters of seabed or you know, maybe sometimes a, a kilometer or two strip, a couple of meters wide that we've looked at. And I think it's, we still write about less than 0.01% of the seafloor has been looked at at the level where, where we can see the biology or sample the biology. Life on the seafloor depends upon which part of the seafloor you're talking about. It is not a homogeneously uniform world. A large part of the seafloor is soft sediment, and there's lots of species in the sediment. So it's very diverse, but the biomass is very small. The number of individuals is relatively small. So it really takes a specialist to get excited about them. little nematodes, little bivalves, little crustacean shrimp-like things. And then on the surface of the mud, you might find some roaming sea cucumbers and brittle stars. Then occasionally there'll be some event on the sea floor and you'll get herds of cucumbers. I haven't seen a herd of cucumbers, but I've seen pictures of them and they're pretty extraordinary. So that's kind of what I have in my mind is, in quotes, typical deep sea.
1: What I have in my mind now is an image of a herd of sea cucumbers. (laughs) (laughs) Not a phrase I ever thought I'd hear. The collective term for sea cucumbers aside, Cindy Lee Vandover, CLVD, her answer... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to the question, what is down there, is, again, we don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. And we, we've looked at about 0.01% of the seabed.
5: It's mad, isn't it? We've, that we've, is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, we've explored something like 5% of the ocean, which covers 70% of the planet. Hmm. And it is some you know, ridiculously small amount of the seabed that we've actually got biological samples from.
1: We do know some of the stuff that is uh, is going on down there. I mentioned the uh, the anglerfish.
5: So there's a tendency for things to get much bigger when they're down in the in the deep sea. Nobody actually knows why. There's no biological theory for why we have these sort of giant monsters, but you get things like twelve foot spider crabs.
1: I mean that's fantastic. Can you imagine
5: coming across one of those bad boys?
1: I'd be a mixture of excited <laughs> and I guess a bit scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: There's a there's a there's a fish called the King of Herrings. Uh-huh. Which exists in the deep ocean. It's an oarfish and it's right. 12 metres long.
1: Oh, no no no, <laughs> no, no. no, no. And is it incre- I bet it's really pale as well. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're not good pallid, looking aren't things, aren't they? <laughs> are they, down <laughs> there? They don't need to be, it's so no, dark. Yeah, it, well, presumably. It's like dating in the dark.
5: Yeah,
0: presumably or getting
5: eaten in the dark. Presumably, there's not a mating thing about looking good, though, is it? It must just be that they don't need to be symmetrical or they don't need to be particularly sleek. Everything moves really slowly down there.
1: But the the there will also be a component which is above the sea. Mates are looking at prospective partners, yeah, and lots of them have you know impressive sort of plumage or coats or whatever, yeah, to, to show off, yeah. And there's really no need for that at the bottom <laughs> of the ocean. So you can just be saying, oh, listen. I promise you, I am super fit.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Your offspring, they're going to be gorgeous. (laughs) I mean, you'll never know. Try and keep away from the light of that anglerfish.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There is a certain amount of light from this kind of bioluminescence.
5: Yeah, Yeah, lots of these creatures have genes that encode proteins that will then create light and use them as lures.
1: Yeah. It's quite good. And there's a lot of that kind of predatory life down there. It's not just anglerfish, is it?
5: No, no. There's, I mean, there's deep-sea sharks. Uh, apparently, there was a great white that was eaten in 2003, and they think it was eaten by an even bigger, like, a super shark. So, what, who
1: just sort of come up, like, sort yeah, of met in the just, middle? just
5: come up. <laughs> the, the great white guess, went a bit yeah, too deep. Yeah, the, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the big old shark it's from the kind bottom of came up. terrifying, it. Isn't it? And there's a yeah. thing called the colossal squid, which is, like, 14 metres long.
1: Yeah, I've actually spent more time than I should have done um, online looking at videos from submersibles that have caught glimpses of uh, of these enormous squid. Very,
5: very enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, they are mental looking. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's I guess the the appeal of the deep sea, isn't it? Is it is this alien world? Isn't nothing looks like the stuff that we're used to looking at. Mm.
1: This enormous shark that has maybe eaten a great white. How how big is it, and what does it look like? Nobody knows. Does it look like a megalodon?
5: <laughs> no, but but the goblin shark looks pretty like a dinosaur. I mean, it's a nasty looking creature. Look that one up. A goblin shark, just hideous.
1: I like an ugly animal, so I wouldn't hold that against it, really. Okay, it's just, all just, yours. Just so you know, y- you mentioned that everything's quite slow moving. Why is that?
5: There's not a lot of energy available so down there. It's bloody cold. <laughs> it's cold and dark. That actually limits, you know, how how much life you can have down there. Okay.
1: One thing that I I should mention is that Cindy, uh, CLVD, is the first and only woman to have piloted the SS Alvin. Whoa. Yeah, you heard me. Uh, It's the classic submersible, isn't it? It's the the primo submersible. Could you handle a, a submersible mission, Michael? Given not you're keen. That, I'm not of course keen. you're not. No, no, no. <laughs> there's one thing I'm learning, and it is the only thing I'm learning, um, <laughs> it's that you are not a fan of the deep sea. No. I, or even the shallow I, sea. I am
5: very much for the surface and the land, and the bit where the surface of the water meets the land, I'm very happy and comfortable Oh, you love a the beach, don't you? <laughs> I do love a beach. But going down on these things, all I would be thinking is, it doesn't take a lot for this window to crack, or yeah, what if there's a bolt loose and... and it, Ugh, the pressures yeah. you're you're dealing with down there. What if you're there's... dead as soon as something goes wrong? That's my big problem with it.
1: But it's curiosity. You love space. There's no real reason to be looking out
5: there. So space I could deal with somehow. That's what of... <laughs> I know. I know. I'm not saying it's rational, but I'm saying that I hate the idea of being deep under the ocean. Where I sort of think if anything goes wrong, I'm going to die straight away. Yeah, definitely not true in space. Well, it's more of an engineered environment somehow. I don't know. It just feels like it feels safer in space.
1: You come across as a lunatic, I don't mind it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, much as you're down on it, though, Michael, the deep sea does offer something uh, a bit more substantial in terms of, like, the bigger picture. It could offer an answer to the origin of all life on Earth. I mean, that's a big deal, isn't it?
5: It is quite a big deal.
1: I'll tell you who thinks so. Professor Cindy.
0: Very soon after the discovery of hydrothermal vents, so this is back in the 1970s, late 1970s, the scientists involved in those early cruises... Um, recognized they have been around since the oceans were created and there was volcanism on the planet and we op- our eyes were open to this idea of chemosynthesis we hadn't realized that microbes could use these compounds that normally we think are toxic and actually love them and chew on them as their, their you know favorite dessert and that just opened up thinking about how life might have originated on, on Earth and, and whether where life might exist on other planets. Because when we were exploring Mars for life, we were looking for photosynthetic life. But here's life that can exist without sunlight and even uh, without oxygen, if you're looking for particular kinds of bugs. The other thing about these systems is that they're not equilibrial systems. They're constantly changing. They're very dynamic. So they're not just steady state. And if you're going to originate life, it seems like that kind of system is what you'd like. You have every kind of chemical condition and temperature condition and pressure condition that you might need to have different kinds of early prebiotic chemistry.
5: Go on then, what do you reckon? Well, it's a good possibility, definitely. It amazes me that scientists until 1977, which is when we discovered hydrothermal vents... You know, people didn't have the wherewithal to think that maybe all life isn't just like the life that we've seen on the surface of the planet. So you get this—you know—this magma coming up meets the seawater. You get all kinds of chemical reactions able to occur at these points, and, and you know things get trapped in the nooks and crannies of the rock. So you get these strange chemical concentrations and combinations. So it's
1: like quite a good lab space, yeah. for life to be developed. Yeah. What are the other theories on origins of life? competing.
5: So one of them is that it actually came here from other planets panspermia, the idea that you know, it just arrived on meteorites or mm-hmm. you know, the, the kind of the building blocks at least mm-hmm. uh, and then there's the idea that it was in the sort of tidal zones uh, where you, again you've got this movement of water and, and the rocks and the chemistry kind of was there and you'd need some kind of zap you know, so a lightning strike on the right thing might have you know, kicked the whole thing off um, It's but, quite dramatic you, isn't it? Yeah, light, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but to be honest we don't really know how life started
1: Hmm. I guess what I find interesting is that actually there is a, a kind of parallel between the the deep sea and space in that it, it they're both just so alien and so so unknown and to to such an extent that NASA and, and oceanographers will collaborate sometimes. Yeah
5: so I mean you know she mentioned this sort of thing about looking for life on Mars and in 76 we sent up these probes to look for life on Mars and, and didn't realise that bacteria could survive in all these odd circumstances and you know these bacteria that actually love these kind of weird environments and, and since then we've discovered that you know there are bacteria that survive and thrive in nuclear power stations and stuff and, uh, and so NASA has realised that actually if it wants to understand what alien life might be like on you know icy moons of Jupiter or whatever then probably the best thing to do is to look at what's going on under the ocean, to get an idea of the scope and range of what kind of life there is.
1: So here's a a big question for you Michael, if it came down to it and you had a straight choice, would you rather find out the origins of life or the theory of everything? So would you unify Einstein's
5: stuff with quantum
1: (laughs) or would you find out where life came from?
5: If I had a guaranteed in on the origin of life, I think I would go for that. Would
1: That I, surprises me. Yeah. I, because, I thought you'd be all over the theory No, no, because I
5: can still work on that. But actually... <laughs> so you still rate yourself. <laughs> yeah, it gives you so, a chance. <laughs> so my, my feeling is... You know, the problem with the origin of life we've got is that we only have one. You know, it's like we've got a sample of one... It's almost impossible to know exactly what happened. And you you can have all these theories, but very, very difficult to test them. If somebody was going to give me that answer on a plate, I would take that. And then I would go away and say, "Okay, that one's solved. Let's concentrate on the theory of everything, because I think we can do that. Yeah,
1: nice approach. I like it. So let's let's recap our questions. So the first one uh, was, how deep can we go? So the record is 332 metres, but... If we can crack liquid breathing, we could go much, much deeper.
5: Yeah. But you know, the deepest part of the ocean is eleven thousand meters. I'm so not is, up for going down there. But yes, you've made that abundantly <laughs> clear.
1: And the second question was, but can we liquid breathe, Michael?
5: Not yet. So what you'd need to do is is have a way of cycling the liquid so that you got the carbon dioxide out as fast as you needed to do which involves something like 10 litres per minute or something if you're active. So you've got to have this sort of circulation of fluid really, really fast in order to, to, to get rid of the waste products. Soon as soon as we crack that, product. yeah, we're in. Or um, you're in, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. You're just holding me under, aren't you? Like a cat. <laughs> It'll be fine, Rick.
1: <laughs> I'm just desperately fighting my gag reflex. Yeah, yeah. look looking forward to that. And the third question was, what is down there? All sorts of great
5: stuff. All sorts.
1: And lots of stuff that we just don't know about. Yeah.
5: Scary stuff and known unknowns. Can we call them that?
1: Yes, we Yes, we can. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Uh, amazing monsters, probably. Not wet aliens, though. No. With a f- uh, big fiberglass city that they then bring out of the sea at the end.
1: Almost, though. Nonsense. The, the stuff that is down there, that's more exciting to me oh, yeah. Than a than a fiberglass alien city.
5: Yeah, yeah. Stupid glowing aliens. Deep
0: core, deep, deep core, this is Cav 1, over. I'm not getting any answer.
2: And we're flooding like a son of a bitch.
3: Yeah, you noticed?
2: No, you did okay back there, Virgil. I was fairly impressed.
3: Yeah, well, not good enough. We're still gonna catch
2: Big Geek. Yeah, well, not in this thing. Deep
5: core,
2: deep core, this is cab one, over. Try it again. Deep
1: core, this is cab one, we need a... Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr Michael Brooks. The producers were Hannah Walker-Brown and Max Sanderson. The researcher was Cormac McAuliffe. This episode featured Dr Oliver Firth, Professor Thomas Schaefer and Professor Cindy Lee Vandover. Well, that's that. Yeah, wonderful.